Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. Science Superpowers is the theme for this spring's Science Unwrapped Lecture Series at Utah State University. Friday night's talk is titled Kepler and the Exoplanet Revolution, presented by... I'm Lucianne Walkowicz, and I'm the Henry Norris Russell Fellow at Princeton University in the Department of Astrophysical Sciences. And beginning in the fall, I'll be an astronomer at Adler Planetarium in Chicago. She joins us today on the program to talk about the NASA Kepler mission and the search for planets. First, I asked her to go back in time and discuss what sparked her scientific curiosity. Well, I always liked science as I was growing up. Um, I was always very curious about things, always conducting sort of home science experiments, whether it was hiding bread under the couch and watching what happened to it if you lift it there for <laughs> a couple of weeks. Um, and when I was in high school, I was really interested in both uh, chemistry and physics. And I really wanted to find something, some way of combining those two. So in, I guess, the summer after my junior year of high school, I was in a program, a research program for high school students uh, run by the New York Academy of Sciences. And I really got a, a great taste for research. I, I worked in a solid-state physics lab at City University um, here in New York. And I, after the program was over, asked the woman who had placed me in that lab if there was anywhere um, that I could work during the school year. And she suggested that since I liked uh, both chemistry and physics, that I might like something like astronomy, which is a very interdisciplinary science and combines the two. Um, so she put me in touch with a professor that did astrochemistry at NYU, and that's how I got exposed to it, and I have been doing it ever since. What fascinates you about astronomy, and what do you see when you look up at night? Growing up, I didn't really have a whole lot of exposure to the night sky because I'm from New York City. So while I think some of my colleagues come from a background where they either had small telescopes or they come from um, somewhere that they could really see the dark night sky, I didn't come from that. So um, I occasionally would see sort of dark night skies when we would go out to Long Island or something like that. But generally speaking... Um, I didn't spend a whole lot of time stargazing as a child, um, but I still you know, heard about astronomical events when I was growing up. Um, there was a big supernova in 1987 that exploded that made um, lots of the popular press, and so um, I remember very clearly that happening. But generally, I would say that what I like about astronomy, um, and one of the things that I find really fascinating is that it's the study of things that are very, very far away that uh, are actually very difficult to, well, and usually impossible to study up close. Um, most of the things, with the exception of objects within our solar system, and even um, not all of them, we can't travel there um, to study them the same way that we would study things on Earth. And so one of the things that I think is really amazing is that you know physics and chemistry What's powerful about it is that it's the same here as it is in other parts of our universe. And so oftentimes what we're doing is taking observations of very, very distant things and teasing out how they work based on the physics and, chemical and chemistry that we have come to know from our familiar surroundings here on Earth. So I think it's really incredible and fascinating um, that we can learn about something as very fundamental as how the universe began and how it got its structure just based on observing things that we actually um, are quite far away from that we can't experience directly. Can you address the Drake equation and the probability that there is life on other planets? Well, the thing is that we don't know the probability that there are uh, or that there is life on other planets. Um, the Drake equation is not an equation in the sense of being a physical law. It's just a way of thinking about the probability that life might exist elsewhere and um, that life would be uh, somewhat Earth-like because it is very much based on you know, the number of stars that are out there, the fraction of those stars that have planets, the fraction of those planets that are like Earth, and then the fraction that have actual life on them. And if you think about it, up until um, really just the past couple of years, we didn't even have any measurements of how common planets the size of Earth were at all. We'd never found them at all. And it's really just been um, 
over the past couple of years due in large part to the Kepler mission that we've been able to determine what the frequency of planets that are at least the size of Earth that have the potential to be rocky planets or planets that resemble perhaps Earth or Mars or Venus, the places in our solar system that we think um, life, well, that we either know life exists or we think that life might have once existed. And so really just in the past couple of years have we even gotten a handle on the fraction of planets that are potentially like Earth that exist around other stars. Now, it's great that we found that they're quite common, um, but we still, in many cases, we don't know what those planets are made up of, and we don't know whether there are conditions, even if they're at the, the so-called right distance from their star, where they might be the same temperature as Earth, that still doesn't actually tell us what it would be like to be an organism on the surface of that planet, um, and it certainly doesn't tell us whether there are organisms on the surface of that planet. So what we know at the moment is that there's a lot of potential real estate out there, but we don't actually know whether any of those places are inhabited. And I think if you talk to most people in astronomy, and certainly um, this is true of myself, one tends to think that because there is a lot of real estate out there, that that means that life is probably common in the universe, especially given how common it is here on Earth and that life occurs even in places on our own Earth that, you know, human beings couldn't survive. Um, but we don't actually know that yet, and so that's something that I think is really exciting, is that over the next decade or so, we'll be able to tease out what these planets are made of with some of um, the, future, the future missions that are planned, like the James Webb Space Telescope, which is the successor to the Hubble, that will tell us something about what the atmospheres of these planets are like then we'll actually be able to tell what they're made up of, whether they're really like Earth, and even possibly whether um, they have signs of life in their atmosphere. What does Kepler tell us, and can it determine the size of a planet and if there is liquid on it? So what we can tell from a mission like Kepler is the size of the planet and how far away it is from its star based on how long it takes to go around its star or its year. And what that tells us, um, if we know how far it is away from its star, and we know what kind of star it's orbiting, um, which we can, you know, the stars are relatively easy to see. We can't actually observe the planet directly, but we can observe the star. And so we get some idea of how much light it's receiving, and that's what we use as a proxy for what temperature it's likely to be. So um, in the case of Earth, a planet that goes around a star like our sun once every year is at about the right um, distance from the star to get just enough light so it's warm, not too cold, and not too hot. Um, the fact that we can tell what size it is based on how much light it blocks when it passes in front of the stars, which is how Kepler actually detects planets, um, that tells us, it gives us some idea of basically how um, dense the planet is and whether, well, in combination with other measurements, it can tell us how dense the planet is. And what we can tell is whether it's small or whether it's very large. Now, Based on our solar system and the small planets that are here, like Earth and Mars, Venus and Mercury, and the very large planets that are here, such as Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, and Uranus, that gives us some way of telling whether we think that the planet is likely to be um, quote-unquote rocky or more similar to those small planets, or whether it's likely to have a big gaseous atmosphere um, the way that uh, something like Jupiter does. But one of the surprising things is that what we found is that one of the most common kind of planets that's out there is these so-called super-Earths. And these are planets that are a little bit bigger than Earth and a little bit smaller than Neptune. And we don't have a super-Earth in our solar system, and so we don't have an up-close example of what those planets are like. And in some cases, they might have very thick oceans and be so-called water worlds. But in other cases, they might actually just be mini versions of Neptunes and have big gaseous atmospheres um, and not perhaps be conducive to life. Um, so we're still really trying to understand what those planets would actually be like since we don't have an example here. When were the first exoplanets discovered? Well, the first exoplanets were discovered um, in the 90s, and the, the ones that were first found were really um, extremely different than our own solar system. So in our solar system, the um, rocky planets are in close to the stars. So you know, Earth, Venus, Mars, Mercury, all very close to the star. And then when you move further away from the star, um, you start to get those very large planets, those very gaseous um, planets like Jupiter and Saturn, etc. And 
basically because we only had one example of a solar system, we tuned all of our models, all of our theory of understanding how solar systems formed to reproduce our solar system. So when the first exoplanets were found, the amazing thing was that what we found were um, what are called now hot Jupiters or large gaseous planets like Jupiter that were nestled in very, very close to their star, almost as close as Mercury. Um, and what's amazing about that is that we really had absolutely no idea how those planets got there. We used to think that to make a planet that big, that had all that gas, that you had to be far enough away from the star to make that happen. And the fact that we found these other planets, um, and they were the first ones that we found, really kind of shook up our ideas about what was possible in exoplanetary systems. I think that a lot of interest in exoplanets is really driven by interest in our own origins. Um, you know, we had for many years, for most of all of human history, in fact, only one planetary system that we knew of, and that's the one that we live in. Um, and in particular, we live here on this planet Earth. And, you know, we're a, we're a species that contemplates its existence and contemplates its origins. And so I think it's natural that we would want to see whether, you know, of all of the stars in the sky that we look up at, whether any of them and how many of them have planets orbiting them. And then, by extension, how many of those planets are going to be planets like Earth? And then on top of that, how many might actually have life, and would that life be anything like us? Or would it be like the many um, almost alien-looking forms of life that exist coexist here with us on Earth? So I think it's really, um, it's something that's a very fundamentally, it's a very human science in the sense, um, because we're really motivated in large part by figuring out um, the context for our solar system, and in particular, for our planet amongst the stars. The study, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, why haven't we heard anything and with so many more planets than expected? Why haven't we detected radio signals from other civilizations? Well, you know, if you think about what SETI looks for, basically the, the methodology behind um, radio SETI searches is that you look for a very particular signal, um, a relatively small range in energies, where if you detected something, it would be a smoking gun and you would say, well, I don't know of any naturally occurring astrophysical process that creates this same signal, therefore it has to be something that was generated um, through technology or artificially by some other intelligence. The thing is, is that we don't really, first of all, we don't know if there, are, there is life on other planets, and we have definitely no idea about what life on other planets would decide to send to us. And so while it's, it's fair to do that search, on the other hand, you know, Earth is actually getting more radio quiet with time. So we've only been broadcasting SETI signals ourselves for, you know, a couple of decades. And over time, we now transmit um, most of our information digitally. And so the Earth is getting more and more quiet as we become more technologically advanced. So in one sense, it's no big surprise that we haven't found anything um, because we're just looking for a very specific kind of signal. And so it doesn't mean that there's not other things out there. And it doesn't mean even that there aren't other radio signals. But you know, space is very big. We don't really know anything about what kind of a signal another intelligence would choose to broadcast, and we haven't been looking very long. So I think, um, you know, that shouldn't be taken as a sign that there's nobody out there or nobody listening. It's just maybe too soon to tell. Searching for planets, can you describe how Kepler works and how does it know how far a star is from the planet that it is looking at? Sure. So Kepler works by making very, very precise measurements of the light from stars. So it just looks at this one field in the sky, it doesn't look all over the sky, just at this one little patch. And for reference, that patch is about as big as the palm of your hand is against the sky if you hold your hand out at arm's length. And what it does, what Kepler does, is measures light from around 160,000 stars or so in that one little patch. And it measures it very precisely to see how that light changes with time. What it's looking for is a planet that's orbiting um, one of those stars or any of those stars will pass between us and the star. And as it does so, it'll block just a little bit of the light that's coming to us from that star. And that means that for a couple of hours, that star will get slightly dimmer. 
And because Kepler measures how the brightness of stars changes over time, it looks for these little dips in the light for the stars to become slightly fainter, and it's capable of detecting that. Now, the change in that light is extremely, extremely small. So for reference, it's a little bit like if you were trying to um, stand across a football field from a car with its headlights pointed at you um, at night. And your job was to detect whether a fly went in front of one of those headlights. And that's the kind of measurement that Kepler is capable of making. Um, so in order to make those measurements, it means that you have to go up above the Earth's atmosphere, which um, essentially, as light comes to us from the stars, it's scattered through the atmosphere and it creates imprecision in the measurements. And so. While there are telescopes that are here um, based on Earth that are capable of finding planets, they are not capable of finding planets that are as small as Earth because the precision of the measurements that they can make um, is, is not quite to the, um, to the ability to be able to measure something that's such a, such a small change. Because our Earth is very, very small compared to our star, and so it only blocks a very tiny amount of light as it passes in front of the star. And so Kepler was launched into space um, in order to make more precise measurements and get those little tiny dips. And in fact, Kepler, when it was first proposed, um, the, the idea for Kepler was around for a long time. There was a paper written on it in the mid-80s. And when Bill Baruki, the principal investigator of the mission, first started talking about this, everybody told him that it couldn't be done. And the reason for that was that the detectors, um, the CCDs, as they're called, which are exactly the same thing that's um, the replacement for film in your digital camera, um, because essentially astronomical telescopes are just really nice digital cameras um, with very fancy lenses. And so when you know Bill Baruki first started talking about doing this kind of mission, it wasn't yet possible with the sort of first generation of those detectors. But over time, they've gotten better and better and so it's really, in part, that technology that has enabled Kepler to go and to make those very precise measurements, in addition to the fact that it's in space. Why is finding other planets such hard work? Well, that's really just a matter of time. In order to find a planet that is going around the star and transiting and blocking some of that light, you have to see it happen multiple times in order to be sure that the planet is there. And that means that planets that are in close to their star that have a shorter year, so to speak, and take you know just a couple of um, days to weeks to months to go around their star, then you don't have to wait as long to see multiple occurrences of that planet transiting the star. If you were to look for a planet like Earth, for example, Earth only goes around the sun every year, right? So if you, say, wanted to see three times um, the dip in the light caused by something like Earth, you would have to wait three years for it to happen over and over again. And so as you go further out from the star and the planets get farther away from the star, their year also becomes longer. And so that means that if you have to wait until you've seen multiple occurrences of these little dips in the light, you have to wait multiple years. So it's much easier to find planets that are very close in to their star where their years are shorter and they um, make these little dips in the light uh, much more frequently than it is to find planets that are further out. So most of the planets that have actually been discovered um, thus far are planets that are relatively close to their star, um, you know, uh, within even the Earth's uh, orbital radius or within the Earth's distance. What did we know before Kepler and how many planets has Kepler discovered since it launched? Well, I think we're at a tally of something like over 3,000 candidates now. With many of the, uh, the Kepler planets, those are what we call candidates until we can verify whether they're true planets or not. So up until about um, when Kepler launched around uh, 2009, there had been, I think, roughly a couple of hundred planets found, um, mostly through very hard scrabble work using uh, ground-based or Earth-based telescopes. Since Kepler launched in 2009, there's now a gigantic list of planet candidates, um, over 3,000 of them. And what happens is that as Kepler discovers those signals, then scientists from all over the globe at this point go and look at those signals and they try to figure out whether 
those signals are in fact caused by planets orbiting that star. And so in some case, that means that we take additional data, um, that we actually try to additionally detect that wobble that will tell us that the, the planet is pulling on the star. And in some cases, we just look to make sure that there's no um, what we call false positives or um, gotcha signals that would actually fake us out and make us think that we had detected a planet when in fact we hadn't. So probably most of those 3,000 plus candidates will turn out to be true planets uh, in the end. Um, but really the power of Kepler is not so much actually conducting a census where it just counts up all the planets. What its real power is, is telling us about the frequency of planets. And that was always its intention. And that's why it only looks at that one patch of the sky. Because we don't think that patch is special in any particular way, we can count up all the planets in one patch of the sky and then look at percentage-wise how many planets occur around which kinds of stars and how big those planets are. And that tells us that actually the, the galaxy teems with planets, that in fact planets, and particularly planets that are small, the size of Earth or so, are very, very common. Um, and so really what Kepler is telling us is not about every planet in the sky, but the fact that our sky is full of planets. How is Kepler doing as a science instrument? And that, there were some problems with it, and will NASA continue funding it? Last year, Kepler had a failure in what's called its reaction wheel. So Kepler is um, in part balanced by um, several uh, reaction wheels that allow us to point the telescope very precisely. And that in part is what allows us to make the very precise measurements that then enable the finding of these very small signals caused by planets around other stars. So when Kepler had a failure in its reaction wheel, it left us with only two of them, and you need a minimum of three in order to be able to point the telescope very precisely. What's been happening since then, um, at first we weren't sure whether this was lights out entirely, and um, the Kepler team at NASA Ames went through a process to try and see if they could get that wheel up and running again. It turned out that the, the wheel was basically unresponsive and that the wheel was not going to turn back on. And so over the past couple of months, there's been a really clever new idea for how to operate the telescope, where it's being proposed as a mission called K2, where you use essentially um, the fact that the sun, the actual light of the sun, exerts a pressure on the telescope. So the telescope is sort of half enshrouded. You could think of it as a, a superhero cape made of solar panels. And those solar panels, um, just like solar panels here on Earth, absorb the light from our sun and use it for energy. But at the same time, they also um, experience a pressure. So basically, we figured out that if you orient the telescope, if you point it in a particular way such that you balance the pressure of the light on those solar panels, you can use that pressure to help point the telescope. And so now um, the team is proposing a repurposed Kepler that will look not at the same patch of sky that Kepler has been looking at, but will look for planets in new patches of sky that we're able to look at by pointing it in this particular way. And so we're in a proposal process now and waiting to hear probably sometime this year from NASA as to whether there will be funding to continue searching for planets using the telescope. What other kinds of searches are happening and what will come after Kepler? What instruments? Well, in addition to Kepler, um, there are, first of all, all the ground-based, Earth-based uh, missions or projects that look for planets around other stars. And those are, in part, telescopes that look for these same dips in the light that Kepler looks for. There are also uh, what are called radial velocity searches, where we actually look for the tiny, tiny wobble of a star as a planet's gravity tugs on it as the planet orbits around the star. Um, and that was the methodology by which um, some of the early planets were detected, and, and still something that we actually use to gain additional information about planets that we find with Kepler and also look for new planets themselves. So those are all ongoing. Um, in terms of space missions, uh, the next mission that will resemble Kepler to come down the pike um, will likely be TESS, which again is another planetary mission that looks for um, these so-called transiting planets or planets that block a little bit of the light. And TESS will actually look at the brightest stars um, that can be seen. And the idea being that um, after TESS will come 
the James Webb Space Telescope, which will be able to characterize or tell what some of these planets are made up of. So TESS will find, essentially, the brightest systems that can be then followed up and that we can learn about in detail with the James Webb Space Telescope. Can you talk about your your project, the Cosmic Movie? I also work on a project called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. So uh, it goes by LSST for short, and this is actually a ground-based telescope that is going to be built um, in Chile starting uh, just a couple months from now. Um, So we've just, I think, going to go ahead with construction um, starting probably in the summer. And this is a very exciting project because what it's going to do is take what we call a survey of the sky, where essentially every few nights, um, every three to four nights or so, it will observe the entire visible night sky. And it will repeat that over and over again for 10 years. Now, we've been for the past you know, decade or so conducting what we call these surveys of the night sky. And there was one in particular that was very ambitious called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey that observed the entire night sky and made essentially um, a grand catalog of everything that it could see. Now, what's amazing about LSST is that it's going to do this multiple times. So that means that we won't just get a static picture of what our sky looks like and what objects are up there. What we'll actually start to be able to see is how things change with time. And that really opens up a whole new dimension to what you can learn. So over the course of these 10 years, we'll essentially be making this giant cosmic movie of everything that changes in our night sky. And not just things that, you know, evolve sort of gradually. Many things in the night sky are old and take millions to billions of years to change. But we'll see things that um, are very violent events that evolve, like, over minutes to hours, days, weeks. Things like exploding stars, um, uh, asteroids that could potentially threaten um, the, you know, existence of life here on Earth. We'll be able to match out, excuse me, we'll be able to map out our galaxy um, in greater detail than we've ever been able to before. And so it will be a really powerful instrument um, that will allow us to understand not only um, what our night sky looks like, but also how it's structured and how it changes with time. And um, even more so, what's amazing about LSST is that the data will be public immediately. So, and we'll also be providing on what we call an alert stream, which is basically a notification system that you could sign up for if you were interested in knowing every time, for example, a star exploded, um, you could sign up for that. And um, that means that that data is available to the entire um, community and that people can use it, whether it's in schools or whether it's professional astronomers, um, to understand our universe. And that's really an amazing resource, I think, for the entire astronomical community as a whole. That was astrophysicist Lucianne Wachowicz. You can catch her talk tonight at 7 p.m. in the Eccles Science Learning Center Auditorium on the USU campus. I'm really looking forward to meeting everybody there and talking a little bit about uh, finding planets with Kepler. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. They say you often learn more from losing than you do from winning. That certainly was the case for the 16-year-old violinist on this week's From the Top. She received no honor at the prestigious Menuhin International Violin Competition. Nonetheless, it really launched her future as a violinist. Meet this inspiring young woman with me, Christopher O'Reilly, on this week's From the Top. Tune in today at noon, repeated Sundays at 9. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and a Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread. At 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering honey crumb granola, cinnamon monkey bread, and vegetarian quiche.
Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Sherry Quinn. Joining us on the phone is Joseph Marshall. He is an educator, the author of six nonfiction works, and has written four screenplays. Several of his books have been published in French, Hebrew, and Korean. His 2009 novel, titled The Long Knives Are Crying, about the Battle of Little Bighorn, won the Benjamin Franklin Award for Historical Fiction. Today he is discussing his latest book, To You We Shall Return, Lessons About Our Planet from the Lakota. I was born and raised on the, uh, the Rosebud Sioux Indian Reservation. That's the official government label, I, I guess. Uh, that is in, uh, still in the south-central South Dakota, just right on the Nebraska border. And our indigenous name for ourselves is the Sichalu Lakota. Um, I, I grew up with my maternal grandparents, my mom's parents, and and they uh, in the home, although they both of them could speak English um, when they absolutely had to, the the primary language in the, in the home was Lakota. So I grew up speaking Lakota as a first language, and uh, that that experience of, of growing up as a child with them in that very traditional community is, is the basis for uh, who I am, and that's the basis for my identity. Can you translate Lakota, the meaning of the word? Yeah, the, the word Lakota. If, if you say the state names of South and North Dakota with a D, then you're, you're saying a word from one of the dialects of the parent language. There are three dialects, Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota, L, D, and N. I speak the L dialect or the Lakota dialect, and bo- all three of those words mean allies or an alliance of friends. So, you know, that's what our, our, our name for ourselves means. Okay. And can you describe what uh, daily life was like? What life was like there? It, it was, uh, well, for me as a child, it was, it was good. It was idyllic because before I went to school, um, I could go anywhere. We lived um, 10 miles, 7 to 10 miles from, from any town. And our home was on, on a plateau above the Little White River, uh, grasslands, the prairies. And we had uh, an assortment of dogs and uh, a few horses. And uh, I could play wherever I wanted, go whatever I wanted. I had choice to, obviously. But uh, it, it was it was a, a good way for a Lakota boy to grow up, just to go and run and play wherever wherever I chose. Uh, all around us was were a lot of farms and ranches, but they were miles away. I think the closest neighbor, uh, non-Indian neighbor, was like seven miles away. And our closest neighbor was a relative of my grandmother's, and he, they lived two miles away. So so it was, uh, it, it was, you know, what I considered to be normal for that point in time. I mean, I didn't know any different. But it was good. It was great. I mean, I had a good time. Uh, I absolutely enjoyed my grandparents' company. They told me stories. Uh, everywhere we went, we walked or we rode in a wagon pulled by horses. Um, occasionally, if we rode in a car, it would be someone else's car because my grandparents didn't own a car. Um, our house was a log house. It didn't uh, have electricity or running water. So we had to, we lit uh, at night, we would light our kerosene lamps. And then we had to haul water from a well about an eighth of a mile away back to the house, uh, winter, summer, spring, and fall. It was great. I mean, I enjoyed it. Um, you know, when you don't know what you're missing, you don't care. I mean, it's life was good. And it, it's, it is it is that period of time in growing up is, is one of, you know, will continue to be, you know, the best part of my childhood. And how does it compare to how you live today? Do you live quite differently? No, no. Obviously, you know, the life, the, the, the physical existence is a lot different. I mean, uh, you know, we 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 are we have electricity and all that other stuff that everybody else has. I mean, life is different, and, uh, and in a sense, I, I miss that simple, elemental lifestyle because there are not so many complications, and life was a lot simpler. And uh, but mainly, I miss that period of time with my grandparents. Mm-hmm. And. How much did they influence your work, and particularly uh, the book We Shall Return? They were the 
my maternal grandparents were the greatest influence on me. I mean, they obviously I, they raised me from the time I was less than a year old. Uh, and although I knew my paternal grandparents, I spent a few years with them, as a matter of fact, later on. Um, the impact that my maternal grandparents had on me was, I mean, that's they're the basis of who I am and what my values are, what insights I've developed over the years comes from them. Um, it resonates from them and originates from them. Um, they told me stories. They they showed me how to live my life by living their lives the way they did. Um, they were, in one sense, very simple people. Not that they were simple-minded, or not not anything like that. But they they had very simple values and they lived by them. And and uh, that was very important to me. That I look back on that as as something that is a valuable lesson even now. And what lessons from Lakota stories or traditions do you use in your writings today? Um, all of them, you know, just about all of them. And not that I've written about all of them, but you know, everything that I write emanates from that period of time in my life where I was uh, had contact, almost constant contact, certainly with my grandparents. But there was a whole community of people their age, their relatives, and their friends obviously my relatives as well, um, who were 50, 60, 70 years old, and they had stories to tell, they had lessons to teach. And so sometimes uh, I was the only child in a gathering of elders, and everybody had something to say. And, and so I'm lucky that I could remember some of that. And so all of those things uh, are part of what I write and what I say. So in a sense... Uh, Although I'm the writer, I'm the voice, so to speak. I'm, I'm giving, I'm the outlet for a lot of those things that I learned back then. A lot of the stories that I heard came from that community, and certainly from my grandparents. So, it's, so it's it's always somewhere in my writing. And what do you hope that readers will will get from the book, and what uh, lessons do you hope to portray for the planet? Well, you know, to you shall return is is a is a book. It's it's more person. It's probably the most personal book I've written. In that, I talk uh, a lot about my experiences growing up on that 320 acres uh, above the Little White River on the northern part of the Rosebud Sioux Reservation with my grandparents, and it's what they taught me about the land, how they related to it, that is the basis for the book, and it's all about understanding the reality of how man fits into the national into the natural environment and we're with many indigenous people certainly with the Lakota uh, they adapted they were part of the whole uh, they were not any better they were not any worse they didn't look at themselves as the dominant species they looked at themselves as part of the whole um, so that's you know that's the basis for what I learned from them and that's what's in the book and you we shall return the title is um it's from a traditional prayer that a lot of Lakota traditional Lakota people use and certainly a lot of Lakota medicine men use and it's part of the prayer acknowledges the earth, what we call grandmother earth. And we say, Grandmother Earth, when our time is done to you we shall return. And it's all about respecting that environment, that grandmother earth. So that's that's the basis of the book. And you say that the earth has gifts to offer, and can you elaborate on that? What those are, or what that means? Um, everything. The earth has everything to offer, even whatever we use. Certainly, as a child growing up, I knew where the water came from, and my grandfather would plow in the spring with a single bottom plow pulled by a, a pair of horses, and then we would would plant our garden and we would cultivate it, harvest it in the fall and everything came from the earth, that's what they taught and, and that was the reality of it, they could point out anything that was around and say this is what the earth provides, the earth enables this, the trees are enabled to grow, the river flows uh, the air uh, everything is of the earth and, and even if we look at today, everything that we use, whether it's uh, plastic or glass or any other material, it was originally some state of raw material that came from the earth itself. We tend to forget that. We think that we've created it magically somehow, 
and that it's separate from the earth. And it's not. Everything comes from the earth. So that's why, that's why I say, or that's why many indigenous people say that, that the earth, everything is a gift from the earth because the earth is, is the symbol of generosity. So that's, that's the basis for, for it. It's for everything is from the earth. In the 21st century, as you know, we've become more attached to technology. Has that caused us to lose sight of appreciating the earth? Yeah, I think it does. I think I think that's a that's a very uh, true statement. There, no true statement is probably ever made. Uh, and we 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 think of technology as giving us uh, superiority. Uh, I think it, it, technology certainly leads to arrogance, and, and arrogance causes us to look down on simple and elemental things. Um, but it gives us a false sense of superiority as far as I'm concerned, and it separates us from from the basic elements that are there, that are of the earth. I mean, we in the wintertime, we turn up the thermostat so our homes are heated, and <clears throat> in the summertime, we turn on the air conditioner, and even the vehicles that we drive in and fly in, the environments are controlled. So when we have that kind of, of situation all around us, we, we, we seem to think that we're apart from the earth itself and, and we lose connection to it. And I think that's the ultimate danger of, of what we, how we regard the earth. And we, we, we lose that sense of connection to it and then, be, and then we begin to disrespect it. And what is your outlook on uh, survival of human species? Um, I hope we're around for a while. <laughs> um, you know, uh, the earth is, some scientists say, halfway through its life cycle of maybe 10 billion years. And, and uh, you know, we certainly aren't going to be around for that, but I hope that our species are and that sometime soon we begin to sort of come to a feature balance where we understand that the Earth is a viable living entity and that we treat it as such uh, instead of polluting it, uh, polluting the waters, the air, uh, using up all the natural resources, um, and and I think one way that we can survive as a species is as a human species is to respect what is there, treat it with respect. Because in in the long run, whatever we do to benefit the earth, we're actually benefiting ourselves, because we will be recipients of of what we what we reap as far as how we've been abusing the earth, how we've been using it, abusing it. Uh, is going to come back to haunt us, and, and it has in, in many ways. So, I think that uh, our the key, part of the key to our future survival is that we that we come to a balance, that we recognize uh, technology for what it is, nothing but a tool. That it's not an that it's not a, a way to look arrogantly down on anything else, but it's just a tool, and we reach a balance between that kind of an attitude and what is out there as far as the reality of what the natural environment is. A little bit of a different subject, but also as, as we humans sprawl further and further out into wild lands, wild, more wild areas, and into uh, territories that are native for coyotes, wolves, and predators and animals, there are, more, there are increasingly more and more human-wildlife conflicts. They're coming further into our urban areas, and we're going out into their areas as well. From your background, what would the Lakota, how would they handle this issue? How would they manage wildlife conflicts with humans? In in the Lakota language, and, and I'm sure there are similarities in the other indigenous languages that existed and still exist. In the Lakota language, there is no word for wilderness. It was all part of, of a whole, and we as human beings fit into that whole, a whole existence, a whole environment. Um, and we were... Not we didn't consider ourselves, as I said earlier, a dominant species. We were part of part of what some people like to call the circle of life. And if you look at a circle, there's no beginning and no ending. And no matter which place you are in the circle, you don't have the top or the bottom or the, or, or anything like that. It's it's all equal. And I think that's how a lot of uh, Native North Americans, pure European North Americans, looked at their situation, the reality of their existence. They were no better or no worse than any other living thing. And they they operated out of that reality. Certainly, uh, humans hunted. They, they preyed on 
uh, animal species that they used for food and so forth. And sometimes they had to defend themselves against some animals, like bears and so forth. But that was part of the reality of the way things were. And, you know, we, what, we, what we tend to forget is that at that at point in time, all over the world, our human populations were, were not like it is now. We're, what, five, six, seven billion people all over the planet, and we're crowding into those territories that are that are been for a long, long time, the the region of the bear, the snow leopard in the, in the Himalayas, whatever, wherever we turn, we've encroached into their territories. So, but then we then we somehow are misinformed, thinking they're the ones that are crowding into ours. We've established urban areas, we've established settlements and towns and cities in areas that were, that was once theirs, and then we kind of foolishly say, well, they're coming into our territory. No, we're, we're in theirs. We're, we're causing an imbalance with the numbers that we have as, as a human population, and that's part of the consequence is that, that animals suffer. When a bear, for example, comes into an urban area and acts threateningly or attacks a human being, then that bear is probably killed. Uh, hopefully, you know, they, they probably should be, you know, relocated somewhere where there is a wild area. But but we, we, we tend to think that we have the first and foremost right to everything. And that's just not a good way to think. And, and so that's the difference between uh, how a lot of Native people thought about the natural environment and everything that was in it. They understood how to interact with other species, and and there was a certain reality there. You just didn't go and provoke, provoke a bear, for example, because he was stronger. Um, a lot of simple realities like that is where is how our ancestors operated, and I think we've lost the sense of those realities. Can you explain what you hope to accomplish with the book? How, how long did it take you to write? Yeah, the, the book, uh, the project was about three years because we it started and then and then another book came along and and so this book got shoved aside and then we went back to it and then and then the editor the publisher and I we had to talk about the approach for the a different approach to the book so the book overall project was like three years but it actually took me only about a year to write um, because I had to you know attend to other obligations along the way but um, what I hope to accomplish is just to create a simple awareness. I'm not a scientist. I don't know it all. But I am a, a citizen of this planet. And I come from a very uh, different viewpoint than, than most people in this country. And that viewpoint is based in uh, what my indigenous ancestors thought of the environment and how they related to it. So it's from that very cultural and very personal viewpoint. And what I want to do is create an awareness of that viewpoint so that anybody who reads the book can say, okay, well, this this is one way that maybe we should think about uh, incorporating, adapting, using in this day and age to relate to, to the environment. So that's what I'm hoping to accomplish. That was Joseph Marshall, author of To You We Shall Return, Lessons About Our Planet from the Lakota. For Access Utah, I'm Sherry Quinn. Hi, this is Blair Larson, host of Fresh Folk. On the show this week, I feature the new collection of songs for a full year of holidays from Debbie Smith and the new album of duets from Willie Nelson. I'll also play songs from new discs by the Blind Boys of Alabama, Diana Jones and Thomas Hine, to name just a few. Join me this Saturday at 8 p.m. for Fresh Folk on Utah Public Radio. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the College of Science at Utah State University, where students step beyond the classroom, participating in advanced research in the lab, field, and outer space. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information at usu.edu science. 
Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn how more than 26,000 Utah school children helped purchase the silver service used on the American battleship USS Utah. First this. The Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with support from a We the People grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. $10,000 is a lot of money today. It was even more in 1909, particularly when it was spent to buy a bunch of silver platters and a fancy punch bowl. But that is how much the state of Utah paid for the silver service it presented as a gift to the newly commissioned American battleship USS Utah. In the early 20th century, national tradition deemed that any state with a battleship named after it to present the new ship with an elegant silver service. Utah's Governor William Spry wanted the Silver Service to be a source of pride for all Utah citizens, so he also thought they should have the privilege of helping to pay for it. As part of his public contribution scheme, Governor Spry proposed that Utah school children participate in the funding drive and recommended a contribution of 10 cents each. Heeding the governor's call, 26,477 Utah school children donated a total of $2,277.42 to the Silver Service Fund. By 1910, the purchase was underway. The Silver Service would consist of 102 pieces and be of high quality and modest design. Its distinguishing feature was its great decorative detail, with individual pieces engraved with depictions of Utah industry, historic events, and natural scenery. One of the pieces, a coffee tray depicting the Brigham Young Monument in downtown Salt Lake City, caused controversy among non-Mormon Utahns. But after months of local and even national debate, the U.S. Navy Department determined that the engravings were acceptable. On November 6, 1911, Governor Spry presented the Silver Service to Captain William Benson, first commander of the USS Utah, in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. The USS Utah was decommissioned in 1932 and served as a training ship until sunk at Pearl Harbor in 1941. Thankfully, some of these pricey silver pieces were saved and returned to the state of Utah, where they are currently in the custody of the Utah Division of State History. Research and writing for this episode of the Beehive Archive were provided by Heidi Orchard. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD 1, 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD 1, 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD 1, 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD 1, 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD 1, 91.5 Logan.